Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris Fault, the editor's Toolkit. My guest today is the terror creator, executive producer, and show, co-showrunner David Kajanik. And also, because I'm in LA, I'm taking advantage of the fact that um, our resident IndieWire terror expert, Steve Green, uh, who you've probably, if you're a fan of the show, you've obviously been reading Steve's stuff, um, so it seems silly not to involve him as well. Yay. So, uh, David. Th- thank you for, ha- for letting me join in on this, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, one thing that I'm really fascinated by, Dave, is that you got, you're adapting this book and you have this world, and there's a sense of what is possible. Like, I mean, there's the thing of what's possible in a book and then what's impossible sure. in a TV show. Sure. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess the boundaries of that are kind of changing with Game of Thrones, but I mean, that is a very expensive show with, you know, incredible resources. I'm wondering, in just thinking about adapting this, did you allow yourself to live in the dream world and then deal with reality? Or was there certain constraints or realities that you kind of dealt with, even just as you're kind of thinking about how to adapt this world? It's more the former, and I don't know whether that speaks to my a relative naivete I had about running a show. I'd never done it before, which is why I paired up with the wonderful Sue Hugh and, and uh, had a fantastic education on this show. But when we brought writers in for the writer's room, we specifically didn't burden ourselves with overthinking producibility at first. I mean, we were, you know, we're all sort of thrifty people by nature, and, and both in terms of storytelling and in other ways. Uh, and so we didn't think it was going to be a huge problem, but we knew there was going to be a day of reckoning when we had outlined episodes we would, were going to have to tweak in some way. And that day of reckoning came when we pitched the season out in great detail to the AMC team, the creative team from the... So you already have writers, you're already... You're oh, already, yeah. You've, yeah, yeah, you've yeah, basically yeah. broken the show. Yeah. And before you start writing, you're, you're, you go back exactly. to Exactly. So we're in the moment where we have outlined the whole season, uh, but we haven't been approved to start writing those episodes as we had formulated them. And we had a fantastic pitch out. At the end of it, uh, everyone was very happy and then we got the email saying, we, we love it, except we just want to make sure some of these episodes are producible. And that's when we had the first dedicated, you know, informed, intelligent conversation in the writer's room about, okay, let's really think about what we've created and whether we need to scale it back. And the, I have to say, the only thing we really needed to address uh, in, a, in a kind of um, a holistic way was, was moving water. And in the show, in the book, I should say, it happens. There are two periods in the in the narrative where there's where there's moving water. One is the the, the very beginning uh, of the chronology of the story when they're still sailing before they get frozen in, and but then there's a section of the book toward the, the sort of the second half of Act Two where there is a, a bit of a thaw and water ice starts breaking up and they're trying to get across it and they're you know that's the that's the portion that had to go. Uh, because we knew we needed to get them frozen in. That's such a crucial part of the storytelling. But once we had them frozen in, getting them south didn't necessarily have to incorporate these massive scenes of undulating sort of pack ice in the ocean with them sort of camped out on it. And, and that was the, the big thing we let go of. Um, we also had uh, a, a sequence in one of the episodes where the ships, one of the ships is raised 30, 40 feet on, on ice and breaks loose. And, and that was the other big set piece that had to go for cost. But other than that, you know, because we knew we were creating a world that was going to rely more on kind of mood and atmosphere than histrionics, we, mm. we, we knew we were going to be okay. That was expensive enough, <laughs> um, just building out that world. But, um, we but didn't even in terms of these exteriors, though, because I mean, obviously you didn't go to the Arctic, no. No. Um, 
although that would have been a story. Um, that element of even how it starts being explained to you how you're going to do these exteriors, which I believe is interior. You're actually mm -hmm. doing them in the interior. Is there also this element of like, oh, like the, your imagination, you're imagining this Arctic world and we're going to do that inside? Like I have to think about yeah. like, you're starting to talk about dealing with the wizards and, yeah. and how we're going to make this happen. I have to imagine that was also an education. Of sure. Sort. We had great reassurance though because we were using the same VFX models uh, that Ridley used, Ridley Scott used to, to make The Martian. So we knew they worked and we knew his collaborators were geniuses and that we could trust if they said this is going to work that we could let it go, that we could keep moving without sort of second-guessing what we were doing. And they, you know, it was a, it's a company called UPP out of Prague, led by a fantastic collaborator called Victor Mueller, and they just, they knew exactly what they could do and what they couldn't, and nothing we were asking them to do for our show was something they felt they were gonna have trouble with. So it was a fantastic, you know, once we got on set and we started to sort of, uh, you know, solve these problems on the day with actors and cameras rolling and all of that, it was just, it was, it was less troubling than you might think. I did have one day when we were shooting the underwater sequence with Collins in the, in the, in the first episode, which, for which there is not a drop of water, uh, there was not a drop of water on the actual set, and I thought, God, is this, can this possibly work? <laughs> and everyone was saying, Dave, it's going to be great, like, don't worry, it's going to look fantastic, and it did, but that's, that's a real learning curve, is if you're not um, temperamentally s sort of ready to always trust your collaborators, and I've certainly had bad experiences on the feature side. You know, it's, you always have that voice in your head saying, double check everything, triple check everything. And you can't in television often because you're moving so fast. So we had none of, none of the chaos that, that your question implies. It really was actually quite a wonderful collaboration and we were able to do everything we needed to do. And I imagine part of this is also in, in the problem solving and the, and the adaptation um, from the visual side, it, part of it is also figuring out where you're gonna do this, right? Like, I, did you end up in Budapest? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we were at, on Stern stages in Budapest, which um, kind of reminded me of like a haunted Soviet elementary school with a couple of big gymnasiums. It was a very strange place, but it, it added to the atmosphere of the shoot. It was a really creepy place, but we did have to do everything inside until the moment they leave ships and we were able to shoot on location in Croatia on an island called Pog, which was a real boon to everyone, particularly the actors, because they went from acting in a very green environment to real environment. And so, almost, could, what is done inside? What is done on the stage? We have the ship, you, 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 you yep. built a ship that's both the interior and the exterior, right? Yep. And what else? What is Basically, almost everything, uh, where characters don't have gravel under their feet. And some of that actually was done, imagine a fairly small sound stage as sound stages go, with either a big ship in the middle uh, on, on a gimbal so it can tilt, or in a second stage we had all the below decks um, sets that were all contiguous, it was laid out like the actual ship, so it was another kind of ship on a second sound stage, two actually side by side, one for two of the decks and one for the bottom deck. And then a third stage uh, where it was giant pieces of laminated styrofoam <laughs> and, and ice. So those were our three main stages when we were in Budapest. So basically everything you see in this show that isn't clearly on real rock is in a, in a sound stage. And, and, and that ice, with this show, uh, so much of, of the, the storytelling impact is, is tracking the passage of time. Uh, and, and so to to use the environment to help tell the story and to track that, 
it's not just a case of where there's one kind of ice. Uh, you have different ice, right. different, different kinds of, of 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 ice for different parts of the year, different temperatures, different environments. And so I, I imagine that must have been something that that you enjoyed kind of playing around with to 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 set up those different time periods and those different conditions to so that it wasn't just all the same. Oh sure, I mean you know the palette changes, the, the kind of ice and rock changes. I mean we. We were so grateful to have an environment for the show that could do its storytelling uh, visually. You know what I mean? It's really it was a it was a huge relief to know that we could navigate all of this story without having to have a ton of expository dialogue about things you were meant to be seeing anyway. So it was like they're under deck and they're talking about. <laughs> what, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which would be a horror film thing to do. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You, you've talked a little bit about uh, the tension between claustrophobia and agoraphobia, and 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 seeing. Uh, people in confined environments and then being confronted with this vast expanse of, of not really seeing anything around you. Um, in the later episodes, when you get out to the more expansive, empty environments, did you find yourselves trying to overcompensate for the fact that there's, there's not a lot there that's visually... Um, you know, to have like an empty landscape isn't uh, on its own uh, visually attention-grabbing uh, unless you frame it in a specific kind of way, and unless yeah. you, you connect it to the characters. I mean, we really loved that about the landscape. I mean, we, we talked a lot with, the, with, with Ed Berger, who was our first director, who was going to have to shoot scenes in both environments. We talked about wanting to, to have a sort of a, a flip in the polarity of the, the visual um, style of the show, and that for the first part, when you're on the ice, you know, the skies would be fairly um, hypnotic, but below the horizon line would be all the chaos. And then once we got on land, it would be sort of below the horizon line was hypnotic and above the horizon line would be the chaos. But once we got to Croatia, we realized we didn't have to build these crazy skyscapes to make the frames interesting. That actually just being in that complete, like relentlessly um, neutral environment, it was much more impactful. I mean, it was much more existentially upsetting to sort of to have characters who are also losing all of their adornments and sort of losing, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the frillier elements of their personalities as they're sort of hammered by the situation that we loved the, that weird canvas behind them. I've never, seen a, I've never seen a show kind of work in that space before. So we were really excited, actually. We tried to, to limit the amount of drama we were adding to the frame so we could make full use of that strange visual tone. And, and you gradually lose that contrast, too. You have characters stripping off these, like, sure. really dark navy blue uh, uniforms down to like yeah. a, a gray yeah. neutral garments. It's, it's not just the land that's, that's being yeah. stripped away, it's, it's what people are wearing too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, could you talk a little bit, there, there is a good amount of visual effects in this, and it's a very stylish show, it has a distinct look, which, and you're, you're kind of touching upon some things that were clearly important to you in, in building the look of the show, but you know, one of my biggest pet peeves with visual effects is not visual effects themselves, but their lack of integration you know, you have like this look, and then you have this kind of painted on separate layer. Yeah. And you've, you, you were, this show is able to avoid that, despite the fact there's clearly elements that are, sure, are sure. visual effects. What, could you talk about, I, I have to assume that that is something, you know, we were talking about the different types of ice and the, the level of pre-production that must be involved in that. I also have to assume that in talking about the look of the show, there also has to be a marriage 
of that visual effects yeah. with your production design, with your cinematographer, with yeah. this look of the show, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, from the beginning, we understood that the look of the show was going to have to make room for visual effects, and we wanted to do that smartly rather than in a reactive way later in, you know, in post when we were having to solve problems being able to see the seams between the effects and, and reality. And so we went into this talking a lot with our collaborators, um, both in terms of how it would be lit, how it would be shot, how it would be framed, lens choice, things like that. We wanted to create a look to the show that was, we called it, um, we used the word a bit curated. We wanted it to feel kind of like uh, the landscapes of a Western, a bit outsized, a bit slightly, carrying slightly more voltage than sort of a, a, a a regular landscape and we wanted to do that because we thought if we encouraged that look then the VFX would layer into it more seamlessly but it also would give us uh, the feeling of a kind of voyage of discovery that all the landscapes had this extra charge um, in the way that they would if you'd never laid eyes on anything like that before and we wanted to make sure the show was beautiful in that way because even as characters cross the line from a grand adventure story into a horror story, they're still in this place they came to with this, with the spirit of discovery. And we never wanted to lose sight of that, but it also helped us cover our scenes in terms of VFX. Because if they know ahead of time where you're going with something, there's, there's elements that could, sure. there are those things that, that can be influenced in sure. terms of production and, Absolutely. and what you're bringing in. Um, off that, what was, I have to assume that to pull this off, there is an element of a good amount of pre-production. Uh, in terms of time, sure. are you given a, 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 a more healthy? Pre I imagine. I guess first off, I'm assuming everything's written, right? Yeah, everything was outlined very specifically. I think seven of the scripts were finished when we started prep, uh -huh. and we had very, very clear uh, outlines for everything else. But the, those discussions then, starting with which your department heads then have, yeah. those discussions with those department heads could start a lot earlier than we Absolutely. would have on a normal TV yeah. show, right? Absolutely, yeah. Like, how much time do you have? When did well, those our writer's room was in the spring of 2016. I think we ended the writer's room in May, maybe. Uh, a couple months went by and then we went to Budapest to, to start meeting with everyone. They'd been already been hired, been doing sort of prep work on their own, but we started really having production meetings in the middle of summer. And we didn't turn the cameras on until November, so what is that? June to July, August, September, October, so four months of, of dedicated prep. Um, which was, yeah, which was, a, a, it wasn't luxurious, but it was, it was a healthy amount of time for what we needed to do. And, and uh, part of, of uh, that, that process uh, obviously, every scene in the show has weight, but there are some sequences that I'm, I'm guessing fans of the book were really looking forward to. Yeah. Um, and one of those was the Carnival sequence, yeah. uh, which, uh, which draws together a, a lot of different elements of, uh, of, of a, um, a, a lot of color that, that you don't really get in a lot of episodes with, with, with the, the sets and, and, and the, the, the frivolity of everything. It does stand out. It, 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 does, it does stand yeah. out. Um, as, as you were sort of preparing that, um, were, there, were there particular things that you wanted people to take away from the, the, the sort of the, the more, um, uh, not, not spectacle scenes, but, but ones, that, uh, ones that existed distinctly from the, the, the more sort of dialogue conversation-based scenes that, that were, were present in other episodes? Sure. I mean, all the, these, you know, we'll call them set pieces in yeah. the show were... Uh, they each had to be handled in a different way from the others, which made it difficult because we couldn't take insights from doing one and apply them very, very much to the others. 
And so we just made sure, you know, we previs the heck out of all of them, uh, gave them plenty of time in advance. I think by the time, uh, you know, the, 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 the last two directors of the, of the show were getting in, they were doing those first, just so we knew we could cross them off the list, that they were, they were previs, we knew everything we needed, we knew how we needed to tweak the scripts for production issues. Uh, and that, you know, that helps enormously to know you have those things behind you. Um, yeah. What was your philosophy towards that carnival? Because there's something that carnival sequence. Because there's something so distinct and wonderful about that. And my understanding is is that there's also something a little bit different from the book too. So there's a, a creation of your own in, in there, right? Yeah, we kept the mandates of the show in general, which is we wanted to try to make everything that happens on the level of plot driven by character. We didn't want too much distinction between what character is in the show and what plot is in the show. And so in the book, that the carnival has a, a, like an Edgar Allan Poe theme. It's sort of each room has a different color, and, and they're sort of recreating uh, the Tunbach. And it, it, was, it, was, it, it seemed like it was geared to be a provocation without the men realizing they were provoking the, the beast. And because we knew that we didn't want the Tunbach in that episode, really, uh, we didn't want to drive the disaster of that, that sequence with the monster again. And uh, we knew we were going to drive it with a character who's sort of giving up hope and thinking he's probably doing everyone a big favor by murdering them all uh, in the end, we thought, well, let's just think about the theme of Carnival and see if it, there's something more useful to, to the story we're telling. And you know, we hit on this notion of, of nostalgia because nostalgia actually is a symptom of scurvy. It's listed in all the Victorian kind of breakdowns <laughs> of what that disease does to you. And we thought things I did not know when I woke up this morning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we thought if the theme of that carnival or place that every room would be a different place the men missed, you know, mm. whether that's you know a racetrack or a forest glade back in, in, in England or their mother's kitchen, or so we just wanted people's nostalgia to kind of be leaking out of their ids in that scene and. We structured it so that we don't really see much of it until Crozier walks in and he's fresh out of polar rehab and seeing things with a kind of clarity that the, the rest of the men don't quite have in that moment. And, you know, we follow him through and you see sort of the most pious of the lieutenants is drunk and singing on stage. And then, you know, they're, they're racing on one another's backs and, you know, Fitzjames is dressed like Britannia. And, you know, then they go in and they're feeding this man who is in a coma. And then you go to the last room and there are guys sitting in a hot tub and it looks like a cook pot. And from Crozier's point of view, he's like, oh, I see, I see what's coming. This is a forecast for the rest of this, or this disaster. We've got to change tracks now. So we just wanted to drive it with that, this kind of sense of visual subtext about what people's anxieties were, but seen through what they thought was the lens of nostalgia. So it was an interesting way to go about it. You know, Steve told me something this morning that I did not know, and I haven't, so I obviously haven't had a chance to listen to it. But... I find this fascinating. You and Sue have done a podcast with yes, Dan Simmons, yeah. Yeah. The, the, who wrote the book. Yeah, kind of, and I, I, I'm sure there was to some degree a level of communication. I think he probably had a pitch, Dan. Uh, yeah, to, 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 more, to, to, it was more. To, a, here's our, our our my approach. It was just me at that point. And but but the, the the podcast is exploring the differences and yeah. having an open conversation about that. That to me is fascinating. What did you learn from those conversations? One, how fortunate enough we were that that Dan was a super classy guy about sort of seeing things and thinking, what the heck? Uh, he wasn't going to gripe. No, no we, we really, we had a couple of great foundational conversations with him. And then, you know, he's an old pro. I mean, he knows how this process works. So he just kind of left us to it, um, probably with his fingers crossed that we were going to do right by the book. But I think in talking to us, he understood we, we, we cared. I mean, we really were trying to do something... Uh, with it that that would honor the book um, and not try to compete with it. Um, and 
we got an email at some point. We didn't realize he had been given the episodes. I'm glad we, we weren't told that because I would have spent, you know, four or five days, you know, <laughs> with sort of growing a couple of, of um, what do you call them? Ulcers. <laughs> Ulcers, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we just got an email out of the blue and it was so effusive and supportive and relieved and excited and, you know, it was the, it was the, it was the email you hope you'll get from someone you're adapting. Uh, and then, you know, we decided we wanted his voice in this, in this conversation, sort of once the show was going on the air. So we did these, these podcasts. And also Adam Nagaitis, the actor who plays Cornelius Hickey, is in some of those. It's a fantastic conversation. It was a lot of fun to have it. And, and one of my favorite stories from, from that, those conversations is the idea that in the writer's room, you gave half the writers uh, the, the charge to read the book as written right. and, and right. the other half to, to read it in chronological order. Yeah. Uh, were there other kind of exercises that you did with the, with the room to kind of uh, force a, uh, a differing viewpoints on, on a particular issue or, or approach that, that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise? Uh, yeah, we did a lot of, 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 I guess you'd have to call them exercises, although they were more kind of emphatic and important than that, that, that word suggests. But we did a lot of trying to um, understand how to give an audience a period show and a genre show where neither of those things was stepping in front of the characters in the show. We wanted the characters to feel as psychologically uh, and technologically as advanced as they must have felt in their own day. And that meant being very specific about how we dealt with exposition, very specific about how we dealt with language in the show. We spent a lot of energy building a dictionary of Victorian English for the show that was for the show, meaning you know, we had all of our writers reading um, uh, novels or essays that were written within 20, 30 years of our, of our time period and also about that time period, and then built a dictionary where everyone was contributing to this massive dictionary on Dropbox and then I would go through because I was going to be the one that was going to be the final kind of revision sort of um, whisper of all of the dialogue to make sure it sounded like it was all of one piece uh, that we were only choosing words and phrases that we felt people would understand in context but that weren't um, that weren't over articulated or over elaborated or frilly or over articulated we just didn't want the show to be fussy in the way that everyone assumes a Victorian show will be fussy. And building that dictionary is a, gr a great achievement for the room. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the most fun of all the things we did in the room, but it was one of the most important. I want to walk back something, because I did not listen to that episode. Why, what were you going for with half the room having read Dan's book and half not? Well, because, yeah, we had... In, in, in order, in, in order of the... the yeah, the, the chapters are yeah. told out of, out of order. It's the, oh, it's in his book, not correct. chronological in the book, but mm -hmm. you can put them in a chronological order. And by the way, both both versions of the novel are fantastic. And uh, I, you know, I we talked to Dan in the podcast about why he chose to put them out the the events out of order. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we were using every opportunity we had because at that point we didn't even know if we were going to tell all of it in chronological order. But it made perfect sense to do it, and so we did it because we didn't want to be a show that was making. Um, Choices like that just to be fresh or interesting, or and so once we realized the best version for us was chrono to tell it chronologically, it was easy. But it was a fun conversation because you know you realize juxtaposition is everything. Right, those transitions and how one forms the sure. other. Is, yeah. And that conversation really helped us in another crucial conversation we had to have because we're on AMC. There are commercial breaks, but. If you stream it later, there aren't commercial breaks. So you know, we tried to intelligently use that opportunity. We wanted to build something where, 
you know, we were using the emphasis that a commercial break allows you six times in an episode. But once you take those commercials away, we didn't want it to feel like it had been built that way. So it was, you know, that conversation bled uh, into the conversation we were having about chronology and when to deploy flashbacks and all of that. It was, it was a lot of structural talk at first. The other thing that was very impressive about the story was the characters' stories themselves. They stand alone. They don't just serve the plot. Um, you know, they don't just serve this idea of like, I need this character for this. They also oh. are, are these fully fleshed out characters with their own arcs. And, and one thing I also learned from our resident terror expert, Steve, is that before breaking the episodes, the kind of breaking out of each individual character yeah. was something. Yeah. Is that something you would normally do with TV, or is that? Is that uh, yeah, I, in the in the the um, the other experiences I've had in TV and the other TV. Room, writer's room I've, I've run, we did that. I just think that's the most sensible way to do it. And particularly with this show, because we knew that over the course of the 10 episodes, the hierarchy was going to fall apart and you know people's ranks were gonna become un, you know useless, really, or, or of no importance to the story. So characters who you meet, who seem like very minor characters, if not invisible characters, in the first couple of episodes would have amazing arcs in the second half of the season. So it didn't make sense to try to, to retro f sort of fit their importance in the show. We wanted to make sure we understood every scene we needed for every arc. Uh, and so yeah, it became a really a, a wonderfully organic process because we fell in love with the characters. We knew what scenes we needed for each of their arcs to have complete satisfying arcs. And then we synthesized it all into episodes. And you know, that was probably the busiest week in the writer's room was the week we started to break episodes out of these. But it's, it was an- it Take was, the blue index cards exactly, and action with the magenta <laughs> ones. It was a, it was, if you like order, you would have loved the first day of that week when all of the cards were sort of grouped by color. And then by the middle, you, you would have gone insane because it was all starting to blend together in this crazy. <laughs> I like what you said earlier about uh, not uh, not unnecessarily using genre as as an excuse to kind of obfuscate things just for the sake of obfuscating them. And I think one of the cases that really drives that home is the Hickey character. Is that you are able to be ambiguous without be, without doing so just to hide things from the audience or make it a puzzle that has to be solved. Sure. Um, and that's 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 a very tricky line to draw. And and I feel like that. That character in particular is 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 the best example of what that of what the show does yeah. in that way. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, with that character, once we decided that we wanted to embrace this idea that came up in the writers' room of him having stolen someone else's identity, and that was more out of a sense of responsibility to the fact that this is real history. I mean, these were real people, and we didn't want to pin these horrible crimes on someone who has you know ancestors still living if we didn't need to. But it also, you know, it, it allowed Adam to play that character in a really interesting way. You realize a lot of what you see in the early episodes is performative, you know what I mean? You don't really know who this guy is at some, some point. And we talked a lot about what do we do with those initials? We wanted to include them. At some point you realize he's carved EC in, in, in the, the lid of his cubby. And I think people genuinely um, don't know what to do with that moment in our show because we have all kinds of open questions we never answer. But we do answer some of them, and I think that you know people have have put forward the most incredible theories online about who that might be. Everyone, first of all, went looking to see if they could pin it to Jack the Ripper, and and we love that. I mean, the, and the fact that we never do answer that, I think, is also something people have quite liked. You know, they don't they don't necessarily want to be um, given answers to everything. I mean, part, a great part of the story 
the real historical story is that we don't have answers, and that's what draws people to it. It has so much ambiguity and so much mystery. Why would, why would we come in and tell a story about that real history and answer everything? It just takes away the, sort of the voltage of the real history in and, some way. And, and part of that is, is that you let Adam come up with a little bit of that backstory himself. Yeah, um, there are three people in the world that know Hickey's real name. Me, Adam, and Sue, and we're not telling anyone. That's, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I would love it to say that way. Uh, the, how, how do you, as, as somebody who's, who's thought so much about this show and, and how you want it to unfold, um, obviously that, that's, in the grand scheme of things, that's, it's, a, it's a tiny detail, but it is something that you kind of relinquished and gave up and, and let someone else contribute. Uh, what, what did you decide you could let be ambiguous from yourself versus from someone else? Oh, I mean, I mean the, the, the pace of making TV is so fast, you just have to go with your gut, you know? So the, the few times something came up that was improvised, and we really, I mean, I love um, collaborating with actors and, and actors improvising. It just, this show wasn't the show where that was going to be very helpful <laughs> because yeah. the language, the amount of actual history, the amount of um, exposition that's layered into character dialogue, you can't really Mm-mm. fuss around with that. Without you know, just riff on the ice and the ghost <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> and and the, the few occasions where we could do that, we, we love, we, we really embraced. And, and we also had on Sunday nights in, in Budapest, we would have meetings where the principal actors, if they wanted to talk about any scenes that were being shot that week, we could discuss them and tweak them. And, all. and the actors were so um, great. I mean, they were so smart about these characters. And at some point you realize they really do own them. I mean, and they probably know a lot more than you do about them at, some, at a certain point. And you, you want to make use of that, obviously. You want the show to be as, as deep in terms of character insight as it can be. And so we had these wonderful you know, four, five, six hour sort of meetings on Sunday nights just talking about what was coming and how we could make them better, richer. I mean, it was, it was a tremendous experience. We're, we're getting towards the end of this podcast, and uh, it's, it is going to go up in mid-June. Uh, the, the finale is actually based is tomorrow night. Yeah, as we're recording. Recor- tonight but, as we're recording it. But um, I, I have a couple of questions. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. so to, if you haven't seen the end, you know, haven't, download the next podcast. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's a bookend device, yeah. um, which is quite lovely. Uh, I, I'm wondering if that's something that you had in your head from the start that you wanted to do, or is that something? Well, the pilot doesn't begin the way this show begins. Um, it begins actually in. I'm the, sorry, I don't understand what that means. Uh, the first episode doesn't begin where the act. The script for the first episode. Sorry, oh, okay, okay. Didn't begin where the actual first episode on. I thought television. you were going David Lynch on. Was <laughs> there a fire walk with me here? <laughs> And uh, it, is an, it is an idea that came up in the writer's room. We were talking about having that framing device. And we decided, let's see if we don't need it. And because, again, we didn't want to, you know, we, it's, you can judge something like that as a trick. You really have to earn something like that, I think, uh, to make it feel um, like it is about character more than it is about plot. And so we put it aside, and, and when we did our first cut of the first episode, AMC came to us and said, look, we, we agree that the monster shouldn't be in this episode, which is a lot to ask, frankly, of, a, of, a, <laughs> of AMC. They were re- ready to go with that. But they did want some reference to it, some kind of, so, so that the audience would know this was, in fact, a, a sort of a paranormal kind of story, that there was a creature, there was some kind of mythological event coming. And so kind of like, we pulled this idea back out and said, would this satisfy that? itch. If we have a reference to the Tunbach right out of the gate, 
but it's but not the way you think. We're not going to show it. We're not going to show you sort of the aftermath of it. We're going to have someone trying to understand across the line of language a description of this thing being told to him in an anuktitut that he doesn't have the words to translate for the person he's translating for and let it be let let's tell the audience that's coming but also tell the audience we're going to be trafficking as much in ambiguity as as anything and not start the show off with a jump scare not start the show off with a flash forward to the creature and they went for it i mean you know we were really grateful because we didn't want to we didn't want to um, you don't want to start off with like a dead body and like yeah, claw marks and sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we, you know, you have to tell an audience what's coming, obviously, but you also have to tell them uh, what they don't have to worry about. And we're not a show that wanted to brutalize anyone, at least not f- formalistically with jump scares and things like that. Um, you know, things get a bit brutal in the last half, but not not in a way that is about tricking the audience. Um, and so we were really happy they they liked that because. That was the ace up our sleeve. If we needed a, a beginning with more of a punch, we had something from the writer's room to use. And I think, it, I think it's lovely. It does work because I feel like when you see it come back around, you're really with Crozier. You, you're really with a character as opposed to just thinking, that's cool, that's neat, that's tricky. You know, it's, just, it's kind of moving because he's, that's the scene where you know he's not going to go back. And it speaks to the, uh, you're kind of touching upon this, but it speaks to this idea of how do you incorporate the horror element here because of that idea is, is that, I mean, you know, it, from a purely promotional standpoint, AMC is going to have an easier time selling horror than, yeah. than mid-19th century yeah. explorers. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but that sense of like when, how do we brace the audience? You also have to brace the audience for the fact that, that this is going to have a supernatural yeah. aspect. Yeah. But that element of, I imagine that was a difficult decision of how you're going to layer that in and build towards towards that. Well, it becomes easier when you know how you're not going to do it. I mean, I keep going back to this idea that we're the, we're a non-jump scare show, and that just seems like a, a, a kind of a minor choice, but it's actually a, a, a fundamental choice. I mean, that's about your relationship with an audience and and how much you're going to invite an audience to participate in deciding for themselves what they think is frightening instead of ramping up the sound and having a cat come out of a trash can or something claw its way into frame that shouldn't be there without being noticed in the first place. I mean, we, we knew we weren't going to be that kind of show, and so we knew we were going to have to deliver our horror through atmosphere and situation um, and anxiety of the, of the characters, you know, and... And I think once you do that, then opportunities present themselves that I think you wouldn't even realize were opportunities if you were already relying on sort of structural um, uh, sleights of hand and tricks to do that work for you. And, and, and it de-emphasizes the, the villain aspect of horror. It, it's horror that doesn't have two clear sides, one fighting the other, and you're rooting for one over the other. Yeah. I think by delaying how long the Tunbach really... Uh, arrives you you get a sense of where everyone's place in this is yeah. and it, it removes the judgment aspect of it of saying like this is this is the antagonist this is the this is the the, the force that has to be defeated yeah i mean we knew no one was going to make this show without a monster in it so our goal was to by the time we get to the first uh, v- real good look at the monster in episode 5 that the audience would have already understood that that's one of a number of things to be concerned about fearful of in the show and that it wasn't even the most frightening thing you know and so that's how we knew we had done our jobs well when people say things like I would have watched the show without a monster that's a big win for us <laughs> I mean it sounds like a criticism but it's not we're delighted with that reaction we agree another huge part of this is you know one thing that's really tricky about TV 
is sometimes there's not enough time. You know, sound becomes something that is layered in in post. Um, but this show, and I think it's kind of building off some of the things you're talking about, has a sound design that's yeah. very rich, very specific. It's not just layer, layer, layer. It, it is, um, and it's incredibly effective because it helps balance that. Um, what we're talking about, that kind of switch between the historical and the horror. I, I'm wondering, was that something that, to, to execute that, was that something that just had to be part of the conversation early on about how we want to do this so that there was an ability to build something like that in post? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, we let everyone know that we wanted the show to, first of all, not have a score that told you how to feel about what you were seeing, that, that we would never uh, have any redundancy between the scene itself and the score and that we were going to underscore the show. There wasn't going to be as much music as you would expect in a show like this. We said that from out of the gate, and that there was going to, we were going to try to play in a space between score and sound design as often as we could, and that we you know, hired a composer who would be able to, and embracing of this idea of working with sound design, and we hired a sound design team that was you know, excited about embracing ambiguity in sort of the score. So we tried to be in that no man's land between the two as often as we could, and tried not to score anything as often as we could. Um, and everybody was excited about that approach when they started to see cuts come in and realize, oh, actually this scene is much more frightening with no score at all. And we knew we had so many environmental sounds to work with to build soundscapes. And you know, I'm a great lover of ambient music, and so I knew that that kind of drone approach to scoring was gonna really work for us because it was going to put you in a space where you were having an emotional reaction, you just didn't know why. You might not even realize that it's based on what you're hearing. And um, you know, all the great horror in the world is, is, is built off sound. I mean, we know that. Horror works best when you hear something but don't see it. And so it was, it's, not a, it's not an avant-garde you know, attitude to have. It's just sometimes hard to convince people that it's the best choice. And so we had lots of conversations with the, with the sound team. Um, boom in London who were fantastic at where we just kept saying pull it back pull it back and they're like I just want to make sure you're you're, you're you, you want this you know to be this low in the mix you want this to be this um, subtle and we're like, absolutely and you know once they got the the vibe of the show they got super excited about doing it and, and it, it mirrors the the way that that you are able to ground this in something real you know the the, the you can ground it in in the sense of you know uh, uh, gravel underneath people's feet or, or ice underneath people's feet but you also get the chance to play around with those tiny moments where you're you're making something like what would it sound like if someone's soul left their body like you get yeah. to you get to play around yeah. with, with that too sure. you get the best of both worlds but also you can tell story through sound in a way I mean I don't think anyone's yet picked up on this but if you go back to episode 9 I'm sorry episode 7 the moment where Morphin holds a gun on the captain Listen to that scene really, really closely. There is a big clue as to what's happening off camera that just things like that. We tried to layer in moments where if you're really paying attention to sound, you're going to hear things that actually inform the direction the story is going. And that's one I, 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 I love to sort of throw out. Like, Go back and watch that moment. There's something crucial there. Okay. This is a standalone story. It's, uh, you know, we've seen the finale, and so we can tell you it's, 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 it's done. Um, but, and I realize nothing is set. Um, Steve interviewed uh, Ridley Scott last week um, and, and threw out some possibilities. Um, this strikes me as this world is open to an anthology. Is that, is that, is that something that you're open to, is this idea of, of something in this vein 
that's kind of part of the larger whole. Well, I had originally developed this at AMC to run, I pitched them five seasons of a show that was about this place. So it was meant to be an anthology series where every season would move ahead any, a number of years. So the first season was to be about the Franklin Expedition. The second season was to be about one of the rescue expeditions, probably the John Ray Expedition. Then it was going to move into the 1950s. Then it was going to move into the 80s and then to present. We were going to tell a kind of haunted house story about the Arctic using this piece of land and this um, mythology as a kind of a constant presence, but subverted every season. And it's before anthology series really took off again. This was, I think this conversation was when uh, American Horror Story was just entering its second season. So no one knew that it was going to be so uh, embraced by audiences. And so AMC wasn't quite ready to take that route yet. And then came back and said, well, we'll greenlight the first season as a, as a limited. And if it goes well, we can talk about an anthology series. And so we weren't very far, far into prep when they started to ask us about the second season and wh whether we could continue this. And I think they actually ended up selling the show as an anthology show at that point. So we went into it not thinking it was, and then we got asked to start thinking about it that way. And you know, Sue and I have decided not to continue with the show because we had an opportunity to do the season we wanted and to do it well. And we wanted, you know, we would, we wouldn't want to do subsequent seasons, even though we pitched some things to AMC and we had a few things we really wanted to do. It didn't seem like it was the resources were going to be quite enough to top this season. So you know, our attitude about it was. We didn't come into it thinking we were going to do multiple seasons. We did, we did exactly what we had hoped to with this season, and we kind of want to let that be what it is and, and sort of move on to other things. So I think there is a plan to try to continue it with other stories that are kind of about history crossed with horror. Um, and we're, I can't wait to see what... <laughs> I can't wait to jump into the audience for season two. Uh, so Becky and Peter Smith take on antho uh, yeah. <laughs> anthology to do this, and they're sitting down with you and Sue. Um, what is the thing, I mean, and by the way, this worked. It worked wonderfully. Uh, you made a lot of good choices and did some amazing, you and your team did amazing work. So this isn't it. Okay. But what's the <laughs> thing when you're talking to them, that if, or if you were to do another one of these, that you would do differently in that sense of like, because I mean, we were talking, we started this conversation about this like huge world and like that sense of like in the writer room versus the, the practicality. And it sounds, that transition seems like it was very good. Yeah. Is there something that you've taken from that that you would kind of? I mean, I have, I have two answers to that. The first one is trust the audience even more. I mean, I think we were really rewarded for our approach to this in a way that it wasn't a given. You know what I mean? I, I you know, we didn't know what people would make of this show given that you know, people have been trained, I think, over the last 20, 30 years to confuse being startled with being scared. Do you know, things like that. And we weren't doing that kind of show. So we wondered if we would make an impact at all, if people would just think it was like a spooky show that wasn't quite as energizing as other things you might watch in the genre. But, you know, the reception has been really validating that, that people do want this also on the table in terms of, you know, where they, where they go to dine on horror, um, so to speak. Uh, but the, as a practical answer, I think I would say um, that there's a kind of uh, attitude we had about building our team and the culture of the show. And we spent a lot of time calling around to make sure that everyone we were hiring or considering hiring uh, was also a generous person, uh, a kind-hearted person, wanted to do their best work, hadn't just been fried on their last project. You know, we wanted to build a culture of, of real um, good-heartedness. And that paid off 
so when I talk to any other showrunner about their experience making it the season of television, all they do is sort of <laughs> for the first like hour or ten hours is just talk about what went wrong. And I don't have a lot of those stories. And certainly none of them are about relationships going wrong. I mean, yeah, we sure every show deals with a couple of people who who aren't in sync with everyone else, and that's fine. But there was no um, there was no chaos or drama. I mean, we got along so well, and it's such a great collaboration across the board. And everyone misses that production. I mean, if you can say that for a production like this, that people still write you and say, "I wish we could we could be back there and doing more of this." I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. So that's what I, that's my big takeaway is that I will never not do that again. I will never not make sure that I'm working with just lovely people. Easier to do that when, or harder to do that in the fact that um, everybody's gone to Budapest? I think it was easier because it, uh, you know, we, everybody came sort of to do, to work hard, you know, and they knew it was going to be a rough, tough production. And There's a family so element. They also. looked to one another. I mean, they trusted one another. I mean, as soon as they realized, um, how carefully we had brought everyone together, then they really opened up. And I think we got some, I think we got a lot of people's best work um, because of that, because we built an environment where people wanted to contribute to that degree. Uh, and so, yeah, I, th I, I think going away altogether gave it a kind of summer camp feel that it wasn't that easy, but it was that feeling. Uh, Dave, congratulations on the terror. Thank thanks for you coming so much. in. Steve, thanks for, for jumping in here. Yeah, um, and the terror. At this point, it's yeah, when you hear this, it's off. I guess you can watch it on demand, download it, but it's oh yeah, there, but we it's want a, millions more people to yeah. <laughs> but, uh, please, please, please. I was about to say yeah. it's on Sundays, but no, it's not. It's 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 off the air by now. Uh, but really, congratulations! It's really you unique so much. piece of television. Thank you for having me.